0: This is a crowd podcast. Before we start, you should know that this episode of Death of a Film Star contains references to self-harm, sexual abuse and drug use. Of course, you know Judy Garland. The voice, the smile... The strange thing about her biggest film, The Wizard of Oz, is how the wizard is never the star, never the main character. That's Judy, from start to finish. She steals the show. But you don't know her like this, how she looks, how she sounds, the people around her, the strangers watching. We're not in Kansas anymore. It's 1969, London's swinging, but not here. We're in the Hippodrome, a big stone building in the middle of town, right on the corner of Cranbourne Street and the Charing Cross Road. It's flashy, the Hippodrome. Big names on the stage, decent money on the punters. But it's not cool, it's not rock and roll, it's showbiz. Stars from old films, not rock bands from old stage shows, not the new festivals springing up everywhere. The Hippodrome's been around forever, different names, different owners. Right now, it's called talk of the town. You dress up, you sit at a round table with a shaded lamp, you eat chicken in a basket and have creme brulee for afters. You watch the old stars you know singing songs that bring back safe memories. No electric guitars, no feedback, No long hair on men, no daisy chains around necks. Judy's 46 years old now, 30 years on from the scarecrow without a brain and the tin man without a heart. And Judy, she's the woman with the past. Four husbands in, the next one watching in the wings, the drug addictions, the booze problems, her breakdowns, her suicide attempts. So you watch her now under the bright spotlight on the stage, an orange trouser suit covered in sequins, foundation covering the lines round her mouth, her eyes. She holds the mic close, plays with its long lead. Totters from one side of the stage to the other, peering into the lights, looking out for that love and remembrance. Calls out for requests, knowing that they know she knows them all. Cups her hand to her ear, Fixes a big smile, plays the game again. Okay, darling, we'll come to that. She sings and sips from a cocktail glass. And when she walks away, the glass is always refilled. She toasts the crowd and stares into the lights and slurs, a little at first, then more and more. They're all waiting for the big song, the one everyone remembers the one everyone's come for but she's holding that back for the very end of course she stumbles a little looks confused for a moment shouts i love you all like it's a triumph the husband-to-be watching on number five he's called michael devinko jr except he's not not anymore he's mickey deans now you ask him he's a musician an entrepreneur You ask people who know him, they say he used to run a disco. He plays a bit of jazz piano, that's it. Oh yeah, and he's gay. In a long-term relationship with a man, but let's not worry about that for now. The audience stare and hoot and drink. Think about the stories they'll tell their friends about the time they saw the famous Judy Garland, about how she looks now. And Judy? She sits on the stage, cross-legged, one single spotlight on her, like she's the loneliest woman in the world, like she's a little girl, all over again. And she sings the song that everyone knows, Somewhere Over the Rainbow. A song about longing, about wanting to be somewhere else, about a place where dreams come true, where trouble melts, like... Lemon Drops. A few days later, she'll marry Mickey Deans at Chelsea Register Office. Almost no one will turn up. Not a daughter, Liza Minnelli. Not the stars who've been in films with her. Three months on, she'll die of a drug overdose in their little rented muse house in Belgravia. And all of it will make no sense. Even as all of it seems clear. A woman running away from a girl's past. A girl who's lost in a woman's world. What shapes this woman? All the stuff that happens to her as a kid. The stuff she chooses, the stuff she doesn't. She's not Judy Garland at the start. She's Frances Gum. Singing with her sisters, moving house every time her father gets caught doing something he's not meant to be doing. The name changes when someone says she's prettier than a garland of flowers. When she's in films, they've got other names for her America's favourite kid sister, Little Miss Showbusiness. But it's what they call her to her face that hurts. The first film she's in, the producers tell her she looks like a fat little pig with pigtails. Another time, a studio exec tells her this. You look like a hunchback. We love you, but you're so fat, you look like a monster. So they control it all. What she eats, what she looks like. They'll watch her in the canteen and take food away from her when she's about to eat. She's hungry all the time. Fantasises about chocolate sundaes goes to school with starlets like Elizabeth Taylor and Lana Turner, feels paranoid about her own looks. The bosses don't care. She's made to wear caps on her teeth. At night, it's rubberized discs on her nose to help reshape it. She's 17 when she makes The Wizard of Oz, gets the part of Dorothy, and she's perfect in it. You can't imagine anyone else skipping down the yellow brick road fighting the Wicked Witch of the West, jumping from black and white to Technicolor, singing that song. They'll vote it the greatest movie song of all time over the rainbow. But nothing is normal for Judy, and none of this feels like a dream. The munchkins, the cute little things who live in munchkin land. One of her husbands, number two if you need to know, says some of the munchkins grope her, get away with it because they're small. Judy, years later, she'll say, they were little drunks, they got smashed every night, and the police used to scoop them up in butterfly nets. Dark, but not the darkest thing in the land of Oz. Now the studio's giving her amphetamines to keep her awake for the long filming days, giving her downers so she can sleep at night. Louis Mayer is one of the M's in MGM. He's the biggest boss. He puts her on a diet, black coffee, chicken soup, 80 cigarettes a day, no one to protect her, no one to step in. My life was a combination of absolute chaos and absolute solitude. That's what Judy remembers. So we've got to talk about the husbands. When she's 17, Judy meets a musician, a composer and conductor. When she's 18, he gives her an engagement ring. Trouble is, he's still married to another woman. She gets pregnant with his baby. The studio is horrified. So's a mother. They say to her, you've got to have an abortion. They do marry, although it doesn't last. It ends when he runs off with Lana Turner... Remember the starlet she goes to school with? The one who makes her paranoid about her looks? There's another abortion when she has an affair. Two years on, she marries the film director, Vincent Minelli. That won't last either. But they have a daughter, Liza. Yep, you know her. But it's all falling apart. The insults and the paranoia, the chaos and the solitude. The first suicide attempt comes in 1948 when she's 26, after a nervous breakdown, before being sent to a psychiatric hospital. She tries to cut her wrists with broken glass. She's on sleeping pills. She's on other pills laced with morphine. She's drinking, and she's got absolute killer migraines. The studio suspends her. She gets put through electroshock therapy for depression. When she fails to show for another role, they give the part to someone else. Now comes her second suicide attempt. This time, she slashes her throat. I went to pieces. That's how she'll remember it years later. All I wanted to do was eat and hide. I lost all my self-confidence for 10 years. So she keeps taking the uppers and the downers, and the drink. When she hasn't got them, she demands them. When she has, she demands more. The talent is still there. The singing voice, the charm on screen. But it comes with so much. There's an agent, works with her for four years. Here's how he describes her. A demented, demanding, supremely talented drug addict. She marries again. This time a former test pilot. He becomes a manager. They have two kids and stay together for a while. It looks happy from the outside. But when it ends, like all her marriages, the truth comes out. How he hits her when he's drunk. How he's tried to take the kids away from her. How the divorce goes through on grounds of mental cruelty. Another quote from Judy. Another line to break your heart. All I could see ahead was more confusion. I wanted to black out the future as well as the past. I wanted to hurt myself and everyone who had hurt me. One more wedding before we get to London. Before we join her on stage. It's an actor this time. He's 18 years younger. It's over in less than three years. Yes, I hit her. He says afterwards, but only in self-defense. We'll be back after this short break. Hey Hey there. I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. even care if they are we are always unpacking that very question on sleepover cinema check out sleepover cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at Evergreenpodcasts.com. see you soon so now we're back in london in 1969 with judy on stage with Mickey Deans watching on, waiting to be husband number five. She needs this to work, Judy, needs the money. Her last manager left a half a million dollars in debt to the taxman. She's had to sell her home in LA. She's got nowhere to go. Mickey's in flares, a dark blue velvet jacket, different to how he was when they met, when he was delivering speed pills to a hotel room in New York. Nice first impressions. She's booked in for five weeks at Talk of the Town, a show each night, and it started well. The first night, the audience cheers so loudly. One critic says it's like a football crowd at a cup final, but there's cracks and doubts as the nights go by and she gets tired and messy and broken up. Another review says this. Make no mistake, the garland magic, warmth, and heart are as irresistible as ever. Nagging question is, how long can she keep it up? Okay, there's another man we need to talk about. Another gay man keeping his private life private. This is Johnny Ray, singer from the pre-rock and roll days. A superstar for a little while. When he's big, girls scream, girls weep. They call him the Nabob of Sob, the Prince of Wales. Wales as in crying. Now, he's not big now. He's forgotten about back home in the States. He'll be the best man when the wedding happens in a few weeks. For now, he's playing Caesar's Palace. Sounds good, doesn't it? But we're not talking about the one in Vegas. We're talking about the one in Luton. C apostrophe. E-S-A-R, apostrophe, S. That's how they spell the Luton version. Keeps the lawyers away, brings the unwary stars in. When Shirley Bassey performs there, she calls it a shithouse. But Johnny's singing, and he's invited his friend Judy along. She's in a white mini dress, matching white leather boots. Thin as a mic stand, slurring. The two of them duet. They're out of tune. Out of sync. And Judy is late, so late, for talk of the town. She doesn't make the 30 odd miles south to London until almost one in the morning. The crowd at the Hippodrome, full of food, full of booze, are booing. Slow handclaps, jeers. She comes on, launches into a song called I Belong to London, always a winner when she's done it before. This time, they're throwing bread rolls, empty cigarette packets. One man climbs on stage, grabs the mic off her, shouts, Miss Garland, your behavior is disgraceful. If you can't make it on time, why bother to turn up at all? Someone throws a wine glass, it smashes at her feet. Judy bursts into tears and runs off the stage. OK, we're a few weeks in. Chelsea Old Town Hall on the King's Road. Judy's in a blue chiffon mini-dress. Mickey's in his velvet jacket. Johnny Ray's in an old crumpled suit. Hundreds have been invited to the reception, all very late notice. Only a few turn up. Here's what Liza Manelli, her daughter, says when she phones. I can't make it, Mama, but I promise I'll come to your next one. There's a big wedding cake, three tiers of it, but it's been in storage, and it's frozen solid. They can't get the knife in when they try to cut it. There's a photographer there, a mate of Mickey's who's been promised 20 quid to take a few snaps. Mickey tells him, dance with Judy, there's no one else. The music, that comes from a one-armed trumpet player playing somewhere over the rainbow. The photographer thinks, She's so frail, so skinny. He thinks, I can feel the bones on her spine sticking out. He thinks, her eyes are glazed over. He never gets paid, the photographer. And there's other things we need to talk about, things the audience at the Hippodrome don't know about that haven't got out into the press. Yet. Three weeks into that run of shows after the Johnny Ray night, The owner looks at her and says, You're not well enough to go on. Unless you show me a doctor's certificate saying you're healthy again, this is off. Judy needs this to work, needs the money. So a doctor's note magically appears. She takes Ritalin to stay awake, stay amped, a stimulant knocking out your appetite, sending your pulse, flying. She takes Seconol to sleep, a barbiturate. Makes you feel sick, paranoid. Sends your pulse, plummeting. She's not the only star on Secondole. It's the Hollywood way. Get high, get low. 15 years back, Marilyn Monroe's died of an overdose. The same pills, the same pulse, plummeting. Judy knows. She talks about it before. Says, you take a couple of sleeping pills and you wake up in 20 minutes and forget you've taken them. So, you take a couple more. She gets through, finishes the run, gets her fee. The night of her last show, she leaves the Hippodrome at 2 a.m. A fan gives her a photo of her to sign. She looks at it, covers the eyes with her hands, moves her hand so it covers the mouth, looks at the fan and says, see? The mouth smiles, but the eyes do not. The wedding, the reception, the life afterwards. Judy and Mickey are in the muse house in Belgravia. It's not big, and it's not flashy, not film star. A white front, a yellow front door. You walk in, and the living room has white walls, gray carpets, a sofa and chairs in black and white. You go upstairs, a shiny rubber tree in a pot halfway up, very late 60s. A small main bedroom, two wardrobes, two small chairs, a bright blue bedspread. Another bedroom off to the side, pink walls and pink carpets. That's her dressing room. Across the landing, a bathroom tiled green. Sixties. It's June now. They've been married three months, Judy and Mickey. Johnny Ray? He comes round, but there's not much else, not much to do. A Saturday night, a program to watch on the BBC, an early night. Judy saying she feels unwell, Mickey feeling the same. It's the phone ringing that wakes him up. Gone half 10 in the morning, and it won't stop. It's for Judy, so he calls a name. Nothing. Checks her dressing room, walks downstairs into the white and gray living room. Nothing. He tries the bathroom door, locked. He climbs onto the flat roof, inches round to the bathroom window, looks inside. And that's when he sees her, slumped on the toilet, hands on her knees, skin pale, a trickle of dried blood from her nose, from her mouth. No movement. No breath. They say afterwards she'd been dead for eight hours. They find a half-finished bottle of secanol on her bedside table, another with a hundred pills in it, not yet opened. And when the news breaks, they show the old clips, the tin man and the scarecrow, the wizard and the witch. They show her past, her hits. They play the song everyone knows somewhere over the rainbow. A song about longing, about wanting to be somewhere else. A place where dreams come true, where trouble melts like lemon drops. And Judy, the woman running away from a girl's past, a girl lost in a woman's world. There's something she says a few years from the end, something that stays with you when you think of her now. She says, I've heard how difficult it is to be with Judy Garland. But you know how difficult it is to be Judy Garland and for me to live with me? She says, I've had to do it. And what more unkind life can you think of than the one I've lived? This episode was written by Tom Fordyce and performed by me, Emma Clark. It was edited by Charlie Frost. For research, we read Me and My Shadows, a family memoir by Judy's daughter, Lorna Luft. We re-watched The Wizard of Oz, A Star is Born and Easter Parade, and used the archives of Variety, The Observer, The L.A. Times and Flashback.com. If you like this episode, go back and listen to the one on Marilyn Monroe or Sharon Tate, And if you want another podcast to listen to, search for Death of a Rockstar and listen to the story of Eva Cassidy, another star we lost too soon. Thanks for listening. Crowd Network. A place where you belong.